Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Going as far back as Mesopotamia in 2000 BC, the village doctor was a key community member, a position that dates back to times before our amazing progress in the understanding of the human body and how it works, science and the cause and treatment of disease. Before science, there was magic and treatments based on observation and available resources. In fact, our founding principle of the Hippocratic Oath dates back to 400 BC in Greek times. While the medical profession remains a central part of our community and life, their position in the local community has changed substantially as the delivery of care moved to problem-solution systems we currently have. While the healthcare system continues to have challenges, it is really good at diagnosis and treatment. If you are having chest pain, the system is finely tuned to assess that symptom, mobilize services and resources, sweeping you to the nearest capable facility for full assessment and instigation of the best possible treatment for a successful outcome. But data supports the notion that in many cases, these acute onset episodes are preventable, but to avoid the disease and acute events requires support and intervention at personalized levels. There is no one-size-fits-all, which runs counter to our traditional approach to patients and disease. We talk about two types of diabetes, as if the whole world falls into these two categories. But as any diabetic patient can attest, they don't. Each individual has their own idiosyncrasies of the disease and their ability to manage and control their health. What works medically for one diabetic may not work for another, and behaviour and human nature play enormous parts to our health and treatments. Can we move our healthcare system to a more customized, individual-centered approach, but do so at scale for everyone, not just limited to the population who have the extra resources and the opportunity, but deliver this to everyone in our society, especially to the underserved and those disenfranchised through the inequitable distribution of our healthcare and wellness system. Join me on the healthcare Upside Down Show, as I talk with Ari Levy. He is the Chief Executive Officer and founder of Shift Life, a group rethinking the way we deliver healthcare, bringing a team-based approach to integrate medicine, diet, health, and wellness into a sustainable action-orientated approach. Perhaps a new take on concierge medicine. Hi, Ari. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick, for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
So concierge medicine is uh, the way of the future, but there's a part of me that says we've been doing that and uh, we pulled away from it. Is that really the plan? Uh, you know, concierge medicine uh, thematically is an approach that gives folks a little bit more time with the patient, right? Um, so I think it's part of the plan. I don't know if it's the total solution. I think there are some inherent flaws um, with how concierge medicine is designed, um, the, the fee structure, the service structure, and then the question about outcomes. So, um, you know, concierge medicine often uh, stands outside in, in an independent silo, if you will, um, and, uh, you know, only focuses, generally speaking, on service-based outcomes, but not necessarily on quality-based outcomes. So let's, let's start with that and, and talk about outcomes before we dive into some of the detail can we already see, based on the information that we have, that delivering that level of service and focus produces better healthcare outcomes? Um, so I probably have a biased answer um, inherently in it. I would say absolutely it does. I'd say that there is a necessary precondition to acknowledge, which is that um, folks who are able to receive this uh, approach either have the means um, or are in a position within an organization where they're deemed at a certain level of a, a critical workforce segment where they get this as a benefit. Um, and so inherently, we already know, based on right, some of the social disparities of health, that folks who have higher income right, and have higher means tend to have better healthcare outcomes and live longer. So that is a bias inherent in any of it. I do believe that the approach of time with a human being um, in order to understand who they are, where they're at and what they need enables us to unlock around habits, behaviors and patterns so that they can have not only the awareness, but take that awareness and translate it into action an action that gets cemented over a period of time. You know, it, it's interesting you frame it that way because I cast my mind back to clinical practice years back in, in my country of origin and the general practitioner would be essentially offering a high level of concierge practice that included home visits and I will tell you personally that they were some of the most satisfying experiences and learning opportunities because they exposed me to things that I would not have ordinarily seen um, had I not been doing that. But we moved away, for, even the United Kingdom has moved away from that, and it's a scale issue that they were unable to scale it. But there's a part of me listening to you that says, if, if it has that value, then we ought to find a way to scale it. Is that true? I think that that's right. Um, uh philosophically an approach. Um, I think, you know, what we struggle with in um, we, what I struggle with in medicine is um, we have gotten so good at reactive and acute care and what I'll call transactions. So we can figure out problems oftentimes before the patient's even in the room. So as a technician, right, not as a caregiver, but as a technician, I know exactly what needs to be done how it needs to be done, and I can get that done in a set period of time, right? There are guidelines and algorithms. We make it very rote. Um, 
those systems, those transactions don't set up for, or what they lose is the soul. So how do you connect with a human being? Because um, many parts of medicine today, as we've begun to understand it, are about epigenetics and have taking on activities that modify, mitigate, and downregulate risk. And how that change happens, um, you know, it's very hard in a five to seven minute exchange or a 15 to 30 minute exchange once to transform somebody's life, to engage with them, to connect with them, to, and I would dare to say it's virtually impossible unless you're uh, providing negative or strongly positive advice, right? It's got to be super binary. You have cancer, you have a horror diagnosis, or you're cancer free, or we solve the problem. I think those are, generally speaking, the, bi- the two binary ways. And, and those are, I, I would suggest, maybe the outliers in terms of the scale of problem, right? Um, so if we're to address those, what, what I heard you say was essentially two types of doctor or two types of service, let's call it, not necessarily the physician piece of it, but one is that technical piece. Is, is there some scope to automate that that'll, that can relieve the pressure so that we can deliver that humanity and the essential component that really changes or, or has the potential to change over the longer term versus that transactional approach that you referred to before? Well, I think we have to. I think we have to. I think um, I, I see people craving connection, um, to be seen, to be heard, to be understood, to be partnered with, not told what to do. I worry that our systems may not be training enough around um, these ideas and these concepts on how do you approach a patient, right? I call this therapeutic matching. How do you find what that patient needs, not in terms of specialist, but how should they be approached? Mm. What type of learning modalities are best for them? How do they receive information so that you so that they understand what you're saying and the implications of that? Right. All too often, we are told and we are, are trained quite often in sort of a CYA type approach in medicine, where I identify the problems, I tell you what you have, I tell you what you need to do, and if I've documented it, I can wipe my hands clean because I did my job, and the rest falls on you. And change is hard. Right. It's sort of like the sort of the, the dirty work in medicine. Right. It, it is hard to help somebody um, embed the habits that they need to have in place. So it, it sounds to me that this is a, a partnership approach that is essential to deliver. But we have limited resources. I, I mean, we, I, I hear repeatedly not just physicians, but nursing all of those professional uh, offerings are struggling to service our existing workload. Is it the workload that needs to change? Or are we, how, how do we reallocate that in a way that will actually deliver that, that change that you're, I think, <clears throat> rightly seeking? You know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't know that I have the answers to, that's a big question there. I definitely have some ideas. I think it takes partnership, teamwork, and collaboration. I think it requires um, bringing 
healthcare professionals and allied healthcare professionals all up to speed on how to engage a human being, understand what they need, understand what their wants are, which are different, right? Understanding where those differences are and understanding how to help them take those steps forward in or acknowledge that they're not in the right place. So, um, you know, whether they're ready to make the change uh, and then ready versus taking the right steps and then helping support them with that. Because there are a lot of people who will leave a doctor's office um, knowing that they have to do something, but be quite overwhelmed as to how to get it done. Um, and physicians have, and maybe I'm a little old school here, but we have a duty and a responsibility, right? Beneficence and non-maleficence to help support. And when you're able to sit, and I know this as a caregiver, I just saw a patient this morning, when you're able to sit and connect with somebody emotionally, relationally, you create what we call a tethered relationship. So I can then text somebody, I can email somebody, I can leave a voicemail, and they understand who I am and my team is because we've been there and we've connected with them at a human level, uh, not at a transactional level. I, I, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's creating the anchor points that allow you to progress to a more advanced level of interaction, perhaps. Um, uh, as you do that, how do we set the system up? Because you, you rightly point out the training piece of this continues to produce folks that I think, certainly based on my experience, are poorly equipped for this, yet we're asking them to flex to a different method of approach? Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's a really good question. Um, I think, I think we have to see a system that's willing to invest dollars um, towards change. When I say change, right, we invest tons of money into technology for systemization and system automation and process improvement and tracking. And I am a huge believer in it. And let me be explicit. I could, we cannot shift, will not grow if we don't have the right systems. We need to make sure that we know how to infuse them with the right souls. So how do we teach and train and support individuals, create the right time allocations so that we can connect with individuals, both in the initial encounters and in the ongoing ones, so that there's the space to get it done um, and to help support that learning. So I think we've got to, I think we've got to value this financially, right? There's got to be dollars and cents uh, committed to it. Um, and when we talk about where the dollars go from, you know, top of the pyramid to bottom of the pyramid, right, we're always trying to stop the bleeding, as they say in healthcare, um, because those are the ones where the delta, quite frankly, is economically advantageous um, to have cost savings. However, as we know from an economic perspective, it's the base that jumps into the high point that really is the one that we're uh, quite often worried about because if we can categorize and understand the base of the folks who are otherwise um, presumed healthy by a screening of some sort, but you know, as a physician would know, there are a lot of uh, incendiary habits that are going to that are sort of creating a, a fire, if you will, within them that's going to uh, break the system down. Then we can help them out a lot. So uh, you, you bring that up and we talked a little bit about this, the, the sort of personal responsibility. I think we can't 
discount that. We all have our own personal responsibility. We can't just expect things to change without that. How do we bring that about, but importantly do it at scale? Because as you said at the outset, we've, we've already got a category of folks who have access. I think by virtue of that bias and you know education, I, I'm not even sure what the parameters are that drive them, but they tend to be healthier, more motivated. But the folks we really need to focus on are at the other end of the spectrum and struggle with this. What is it that we can do that will allow for that change to deliver the healthy benefits? Yes. So people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And what I mean by that, um, and you know, and I see your head nodding here, is uh, I've got to have a reason to care. So the, the healthcare system, right, is designed as a reactive problem solution system, and we do a great job. I'm a huge believer in medicine and the healthcare system, you know, and shift partners with large institutions because we treat heart disease better than we have ever before, right? Heart attacks, door to balloon time, door to cath time, like we can handle that in a way we couldn't. Automobile accidents, you know, huge bodily fractures, like people, right, are living longer than ever before. But we, are not training these caregivers on how to care. When I say care, I mean emotionally connect with somebody. And that has to happen. We have training systems in places. We have residency programs. We have nurse practitioners. We, we have programs galore. This should be a foundational part of how we learn um, and engage with somebody. We should, it should be part of the H&P. It should be part of, we, you know, we have a pre-visit questionnaire where we go into psychographic profiling. Who is this person? How do they behave? What are the things that they are seeking in their life? We pull out environmental context to understand what's happening around them because all of those pieces of data are rich in helping transform their lives and understanding whether or not it's the appropriate time. So th- th- it, it's clear, as, as you rightly surmise that with data, we have achieved very high uh, improvements for the transactional components, the the treatment of acute disease, you know, door to balloon Mm -hmm. time. How did we do that? I think we did that in large part because we measured things and demonstrated where we were failing. If we're to bring about what I would call concierge medicine, you know, it's a form of precision medicine to everybody, we have to measure those elements. Do you think we're measuring that data at this point or is that still a gap in the information that we're assessing about our patients? I think think the healthcare system has too many other problems to be really effectively looking at this one. And what I mean by that is, is imagine therapeutic matching. Nick, imagine if you were able to connect with a physician who understood the human that you were, how you like to be approached in a conversation, the level of detail you needed to make a decision, right? The process that you needed to come to some conclusion, who you needed to talk to, right? And they were a good match for you, right? Personality. There are some people you meet and you're like, oh God, I I can't even, they may be fantastic, but I can't even engage with them. And human beings, right? We need to connect. (laughs) And so it doesn't matter what the person 
says, right? The, the expert says, if we can't connect. Now, where it does matter and where we have done a great job is we are able to, again, if my life is on the line, it's less about connecting and more about technical skill. Hey, I need you to save my life. Something is going on inside of me that I cannot figure out. I'll give you the information you need. And then I surrender, right? But the type of medicine we're talking about is not about surrendering. It's about empowering because healthcare based on epigenetics, right? The upregulation or downregulation of genetic expression for diseases, right? For cancer, for longevity are in the hands of each of us, which is really powerful and super scary. So it it sounds like we have the potential, we know how to do this, but there's a step at the beginning that I think is missing is that assessment to know, because as you were talking, I was thinking, gosh, you're you're right. My personal selection of physicians has been suboptimal and, and it's not their fault, it's that matching fault how do we go about achieving that? Because that seems central to this is if we could get those matches right, right now geography shouldn't matter. It it seems to be mattering again since we've, you know, uh, passed pandemic. But let's assume that we can continue the the appropriate uh, delivery of care no matter where you are. Is there some way to approach that matching so that I can get the clinical support person that is exactly right for me? Uh, I believe there is, and I believe that's what we're trying to do. Um, I think it's going to take uh, it's going to take a minute um, because I think it is about um, actually using big data, AI, machine learning, asking good questions, and seeing where the correlations are. It's also about using some basic stuff that's been out there about um, you know. Uh, psychographic profiling, right? Uh, Personalities and behaviors, and we all are rather predictable, even in our own unique ways. And so understanding how to bring that together um, is part of why we're taking on the approach that we take here. So good news, I, I think we've got increasing amounts of data that can contribute. I think hopefully an openness to understanding that this is not just about the acute care. I think you articulated that very clearly and appropriately at the point that it's in an emergent situation. I just don't care. Get me treated. You know, we don't need to have a personal relationship. I just want the best possible outcome. But everything else around that is about the human connection we can find the data, there are opportunities to deliver that. I I think this is an exciting time for the delivery of personalized care, concierge medicine, that is going to allow us to return almost to how it was in the past, but at scale, ultimately. Um, Are you excited about that? I am super excited about it. Uh, I think it will Uh, take us a minute. I think we're seeing more and more dollars being thrown into primary care, right? And frontline care medicine to help improve whether it's primary care medicine or behavioral health. What I am cautious about yet optimistic is that we build systems with souls so that we're able to have that connection. Because when you look at where and how dollars traditionally get thrown around, it's to build systems 
that can replace the souls so that if a doctor leaves, oh, we'll just put a new person in there, right? Uh, so that it's sort of, it's automatic. It's, it's bankable or investable, if you will, from a private equity standpoint. Ari, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nick. It was a pleasure. We can have frontline medicine that is futuristic and technology enabled, but continues to have the soul and human heart that is essential for creating positive and lasting change in individuals' behavior and health. Technology will supplement our human interactions, bringing data analysis, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and big data to bear on our individual makeup so that we bring the right resources for the benefit of the patient and the human being sitting in front of the doctor at this moment in time. Your better pill to swallow is opening your system and mind to the potential for different approaches customized to the individual and their personal psychographic profile. Incorporate all the aspects of your customers and patients and start to match the resources and even the way we communicate to these aspects to empower everyone and maximize the impact we have on the health and wellness trajectory of our patients. As Brian said in The Life of Brian, you're all individuals, you're all different, and your customers and patients are too. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.